Hello. Michael, this is my show. Please, I, I should get the first word. <laughs> I, I thought maybe I would really keep people on their toes by introducing it myself. I mean, I, I, was, I was waiting for more people to join the room, but you totally uh, jumped the gun. So, let, so let's start. We're live right. on, on AMLAB. Michael, thank you for taking the time. Nothing I'd rather be doing at 7 o'clock <laughs> on a Sunday night. <laughs> well, there's a lot to discuss. So, okay, last time we spoke, Michael, it was Super Bowl Sunday. And at that yeah, point, at you that were, point... You were super excited for the game, so we had to move things along at a brisk pace to not yes, interrupt th- your pregame yes, thank you for thank you for accommodating me. And thank you for continuing that joke into the following week. I, uh, <laughs> I appreciate it. So the last time... So the talking point then about Ukraine was... It's, I've lost track. It was basically at that point, uh, Putin was preparing false flags and had advanced his capability to attack, but he still hadn't made the decision to attack, right? That was the Biden administration's line. On Friday, though, we got an upgrade. Biden announced from the White, from the White House that Putin, according to U.S. intelligence, has decided to invade and has put the, the orders in motion. Now, a, a couple awkward things I want to note. Michael, and I get your take, is that the messaging is still out of sync between the U.S. and its allies. And I think the big reason for that is that the U.S. is not sharing any intelligence with its allies, as they've quietly admitted, which I'll, I'll get to. But basically, the, uh, let me read to you from the New York Times. This is from today. The new intelligence reveals that 40 to 50 percent of the more than 150,000 Russian forces surrounding Ukraine have moved out of staging and into combat formation and could launch a full-scale invasion within days, U.S. officials said Friday. Now, embedded with this, within this is a few assumptions. First of all, this figure of 150,000 Russian forces, the only source for that is the U.S. government. And no one else is corroborating these claims. Even the claim of 100,000 Russian forces on the border, I'm not even sure that I trust because it's only the U.S. government saying it. But now they're saying that, again, 40 to 50 percent of these forces have moved out of staging and into combat formation. But the problem is they're not getting anyone else to agree with them, including the Ukrainian defense minister, who said today, and I'm quoting from uh, the Ukrainian journalist Leonid Rogozin here. He says that the Ukrainian defense minister says Russia hasn't formed a single battle ready group along the Ukrainian border yet. And he quotes yep. them. So, take, so talking about an attack happening tomorrow or be inappropriate or day tomorrow is inappropriate. <laughs> and be, he, he added, it doesn't mean low risks. Yes, of course, there's not a low risk, um, um, or or there could be a low risk. Um, but uh, it's just it's stunning that they're not even coordinating their messaging, or perhaps they're perhaps the people in the U.S. are so kind of uh, they have so much hubris that they don't care whatever the Ukrainians say, because it's not really about them anyway, that this really is just about ginning up a confrontation with, with, with Russia. And no matter what the Ukrainians say is perhaps to them, to the people in the Biden administration right now of no consequence. Yeah. You know, I think when Zelensky appeared at this conference in Munich, which is one of these annual or you know biannual kind of confabs filled with, Every spook under the sun, and you know, Anne Applebaum is there, you know, making herself available for analysis and commentary, and Ian Bremmer and 
all these like Atlanticist types, you know, swooped into Munich to give their latest dire assessment on Putin's motivations or whatever, because they have these psychic powers where I made a joke a few days ago, but I almost have come to seriously believe it, which is that if all the people who claim they have these deep psychic insights into Putin's brains got together and kind of marshaled their powers, they could probably levitate the Kremlin. Um, because I mean, really, they—they're like the world's most incisive, like a geopolitical psychoanalysis or something. Um, but anyway, uh, on uh, when it was announced the day before this conference, or the day before Zelensky appeared at this conference, that he was in fact going and he wasn't remaining in Ukraine uh, to ward off an invasion. Uh, you know, a number of news outlets in the U.S. had been circulated yet another of these never-ending leaks saying that U.S. intelligence didn't think it was a good idea for Zelensky to leave the country. They thought he <laughs> needed to be physically in Ukraine because an invasion was liable to occur at any moment. Um, and so Zelensky goes and he delivers a speech, right? And the speech, the speech is fairly impassioned. I listened to the entire thing because if you listened or if you read U.S. media accounts, like on CNN today, Dana Bash kind of summarized Zelensky's speech when she was interviewing um, Anthony Blinken or Antony Blinken, sorry. Um, and how it was summarized was that basically... Zelensky has had it, and he's demanding that the West stop appeasing Putin. Um, and he wants sanctions to be imposed now. Like, he's had it up here with the complacency of the West and not actually taking Putin to task, right? That was how U.S. journalists tend to have characterize Zelensky's remarks. But it gets to the point of you, uh, you raised, which is that Zelensky still continues to be out of step with the American talking points on this, even at like the 11th hour where they're saying the invasion is now a certainty, you know, Biden claims he's personally convinced that it's happening and will happen at any moment. Nonetheless, Lansky's still out of step because I think that was a total mischaracterization of what Zelensky said. Now, some of this is a little bit ambiguous because I'm relying on translations. I don't speak Ukrainian, but if you listen to the full speech, Zelensky said a variation at this conference on what he's been saying for a long time now, which is that if the U.S. is so certain that an invasion is going to happen, why are they talking about only imposing sanctions after the invasion happens? That, that proves they don't really care about Ukraine, right? Because they're not using sanctions as, as a deterrent. Like, what does Ukraine care if after it's invaded and its government is overthrown and it's put, occupied, that the U.S. finally gets around to imp, uh, imposing these far-reaching sanctions, right? And, you know, that does make sense from a logical standpoint in that formulation. Uh, but so Zelensky essentially reiterated that same kind of almost objection to the U.S. seeming to use Ukraine as a pawn. And then it got reported in U.S. media as, oh, now Zelensky's finally turned turn the page and he's uh, on board with U.S. kind of ass aggressiveness in its you know, forecasting of an imminent invasion. That's not how I read it at all. Now, maybe somebody who speaks fluent Ukrainian can correct me and should go watch that for themselves, you know, email me or something and uh, let me know what you think. But it still seems <laughs> that even now um, Zelensky is out of step with the U.S., which is just incredible given the absolute direness 
of the the prognostications that we keep seeing uh, escalating with every passing day. Um, and, you know, what, one thing that, that I tr- I've sort of been puzzling over, and I'm curious what you think about this, Aaron, is that, you know, we get, we're, we're getting these constant public kind of disseminations of what the alleged intelligence is, you know, as it develops. And the Biden administration is being lauded by a lot of these analysts for their really novel strategy here of like trying to stay one step ahead of Putin in the information war by, um, you know, constantly flooding the, the media with these leaks and uh, being like maximally transparent about it, supposedly. And um, I'm increasingly of the mind that what the Biden administration sa- is saying seems to be very much what anybody with a Twitter account can access because there are a lot of these supposed OSINT or OSINT acronym uh, analysts on Twitter, open source intelligence, right? Where you have a, you know, a battery of these firms and these even private individuals who have like a, you know, three computer monitors set up on their desk somewhere. And they're monitoring, you know, flight data and they're monitoring satellite footage from commercial entities and so on and so forth. And, you know, they've crowdsourced intelligence gathering now. I mean, it's one of them, you know, phenomenal innovations that we can all be so thankful for. Uh, but that, but what they're saying seems to like generally track with what the Biden administration, oh, of course, is saying. Of so, course. so I mean, maybe the Biden administration is just like characterizing what those people are offering up, right? And it's just like meant to be sort of a feedback feedback loop type thing, and they don't have any information at all that's actually you know unique to their own intelligence gathering prowess. Right. Um, I don't have a well-formed theory on that, uh, but seems to be something that, you know, is, is operative here. Well, look, I mean, I have experience with this when it comes to Syria. There's this group called Bellingcat, which right, right, right. happens to be funded by the National Endowment for Democracy. It partners with the British government for information operations, and it always does produces these OSINT uh, research project, projects that always happen to confirm every single allegation that the U.S. or the U.K. are making. And look, speaking of Van, Apple, of Van Applebaum, you mentioned her before. I've lost track of how many like fake organizations she sits on that like fights disinformation. I learned a new one this weekend. It's called the Global Disinformation Index. And uh, I, I learned about it because the New York Times did this article about how misinformation researchers – are looking into how Russia is laying the groundwork online for a false flag. And so the Times says that it asked the Global Disinformation Index to independently evaluate the misinformation researchers' report. And guess what? The Global Disinformation Index found that the research pointing to a Russian false flag looked reliable. And then I looked at who the Global Disinformation Index is, and it's funded by the National Endowment for Democracy which is a CIA cutout, the, the UK Foreign Commonwealth Office, the Omidyar Network, the Charles Koch Institute, the Knight Foundation, all the usual, you know, <laughs> shady <laughs> foundations. And its board includes none other than Ann Applebaum of the Atlantic and virtually um, every single, you know, sort of cold warrior organization uh, that, that we can think of. And, yeah, it, it is such a racket. And, you know, going back to Zelensky, I um, – I don't know very much about internal Ukrainian politics, but I, I'm starting to feel sorry for him. I think he's in a very tough position. He ran on a, on a pro-peace platform. 
he was going to actually end the war on the Donbass. And then he came into office, and then he had the whole Trump impeachment thing. He was caught up in that, and um, you know, which was kind of humiliating for him. Where it, it just showed that whether you're Trump or you're the Democrats, Ukraine was basically this this pawn to be used uh, for their own political reasons. In the case of Trump, it was to go after Biden. In the case of the Democrats, it was to you know basically make Ukrainians bullet stoppers in a proxy war against Russia. I mean, that's why Adam Schiff was saying. What an outrage it was that Trump paused weapon sales to Ukraine because Ukraine fights Russia over there, so we don't fight them over here, right? So, and then uh, Biden comes into office, and you think that maybe if. By the way, when you repeat that Adam Schiff quote, a tear uh, streams down my cheek. <laughs> oh, it's so it's so beautiful. It's, it's so touching. So touched by how it. How could you not? How could you not vote for impeachment after that? <laughs> yeah. And how could you not be furious that Tulsi Gabbard voted present? Instead of yeah, uh, that's still I still fume over that every, <laughs> every night. So then the Biden administration comes in, and as we talked about last time, I mentioned this. There's this article in Time Magazine recently that reveals that Zelensky cracked down on the pro-Russian opposition, the largest opposition party inside Ukraine, as a gift to, to the Biden administration. It was conceived as a welcome gift to the Biden administration. That's what one top Zelensky aide said. And not long after that, you had Russia starting to deploy troops to its borders. And what it looks to me here is like Zelensky is caught because he has, you know, far right elements in his country that do not want any accommodation with Russia whatsoever. And they crucially do not want to see the implementation of the Minsk Accords, which would basically end the conflict in the Donbass by demilitarizing the Donbass. But in exchange, the Donbass would get some form of autonomy and basically give them a veto over Ukraine ever joining NATO. So you have far-right elements in Ukraine who don't want that. And if Zelensky goes through with that, he will face their, um, their rancor. And we've seen what they've done before. I mean, this, these, are the ele- these are the elements that were behind the coup in 2014 that overthrew Yanukovych and basically set off this entire thing. So the only way Zelensky can really do anything, because he doesn't have the support of the far-right in Ukraine, who are very influential, is if he has the U.S. backing him up. But it's very obvious that the U.S. is not putting any pressure on Zelensky at all or offering him any support to actually implement Minsk. That's the message coming out of these recent talks um, that were held, brokered by Germany and France to implement Minsk. There was an article about it in the Washington Post, and uh, they note that basically the U.S. role is, is absent in putting pressure on Zelensky. And as a result, the Zelensky government said that they refused to negotiate with the pro-Russian separatists uh, who control uh, the breakaway regions of the Donbass, which is just an obvious sign that they're not interested in negotiating. So to me, Zelensky is caught between um, Washington, which has no interest in reaching an accommodation that would end the conflict in Donbass, because that would basically make Ukraine a neutral country. It would basically make Ukraine akin to Finland, where it can't join NATO. And there are hawks in Washington who don't want that, and there are right-wingers in Ukraine who don't, who don't, who don't want that. And so everybody else is, uh, is caught in the middle. And meanwhile, you have, despite all the claims that the U.S. Is, has all this rock-solid intelligence, it's obvious that, they're, that, like, you know, that, all, like, that none of this is credible because in the Washington Post the last few days, it's been reported several times now that the U.S. is not sharing anything with their European allies. For example, the Washington Post says, quote, high-level European officials have expressed frustration that the U.S. had not shared the intelligence that led it to surmise Russia's intentions with such certainty, unquote. It's obvious why, because there is no intelligence. It's just basically 
a circular feedback loop where, you know, whether it's OSINT researchers on Twitter or people in the U.S. intelligence community basically drawing maximalist interpretations based on thin evidence, there's nothing really concrete there. Yeah, it's sort of a bizarre continuation of how Russiagate functioned domestically. I mean, it was sort of a version of that, right, where, where they had this constant ever-enlargening feedback loop of, you know, the media reporting on something, then national security apparatchiks uh, reacting to what the media reported and opening investigations or claiming that they plan to open an investigation. And then the media reports on the national security apparatchik claim that they're going to launch an investigation, right? It just goes on and on and on as a sort of a snowball effect. Um, and now I guess we see sort of the latest instantiation of that uh, dynamic, although with more of an acute danger. Um, you know, I mentioned before that Zelensky, you know, even by going to the, to this Munich conference, he again defied the U.S., which is sort of weird that he's now being characterized in U.S. media as a, you know, uh, as locking arms with the American administration and their resolve against Russia. Because, you know, for Zelensky to still be defying the U.S. at this point really compromises the viability of the narrative. I, I don't know how much longer that can persist before somebody people before people detect like something fundamentally awry. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, when it was announced that he was going to Munich on, on Friday, uh, two of the most kind of active, quote-unquote, analysts on this subject on, on Twitter um, weighed in with their, you know, masterful commentary. And um, one of them said, quote, bold move, and by bold I mean, you know, nervous emoticon. So, like, don't go, Zelensky, it's a really bad idea. And uh, another one just said, you know, bad idea, bad idea. <laughs> And who are these people? Well, the first one, his name is Shashank Joshi. And the second one's name is Michael Kaufman. And what do both of those people have in, have in common? Well, I mean, although one is the defense editor for The Economist and the other merely has a think tank affiliation, what they both have in common is that they both received funds <laughs> from entities that are essentially interchangeable with either the UK or the US government in putting forth analyses of Russian affairs, right? So um, Michael Kaufman is, he's cited everywhere. In every oh, Politico yeah. story you read about like the alleged status of the Russian troop advance or whatnot, cites him. And uh, he's affiliated with CNA, which I'm trying to understand the exact institutional uh, composition of this organization. Because if you read the about page of CNA, they say that the f official name of the organization is just CNA. Like it's not an acronym, it's just CNA, and yet it derives from its former status as being the Center for Naval Analyses, which is actually funded by the Department of the Navy to provide them with intelligence on stuff like, I don't know, Russian troop advances. Um, so he, he works for that organization. Um, uh, not, a, to be confused with, not, not to be confused with Center for a New American Security. No, no. Which also no. is, it's like a, it's like, that's also a Biden-Obama-Clinton world. Yeah, I'm sure where they. Yeah, that's the, that's the uh, Michelle Flournoy yeah. organization. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure where they run into each other at DC uh, conferences if they're starting up again post COVID, they'll they'll uh, commiserate with one another over their respective acronyms. Sometimes being like amusingly confused. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, you know Shashank Joshi, the journalist operating under journalistic auspices, proudly advertises 
that uh, he formerly worked for the Royal United Services Institute for Defense and Security Studies, otherwise known as RUSI, uh, which is uh, essentially the in-house think tank for the defense ministry in the UK. And, you know, they recently put out this map that looked like, you know, it could have been made in Photoshop in about 20 minutes. Oh, with uh, the arrows? Like arrows shooting in every direction, you know, from Belarus to Crimea, Black yeah. Sea. I mean, it, yeah. it, I could have made that, like, uh, drunk one night or something. Do you want to know what was so funny about that map? Is the yeah. arrows, none of the arrows emanated from the Donbass, the Ukrainian yeah. region, yeah. where, according to all these people, Russia is occupying and has forces. But yet, none of their arrows were coming from that region where these Russians supposedly are inside Ukraine. Anyway, but just to, like, um, just to book in the point, I mean, these are two of the uh, supposedly the most super serious guys, you know, anywhere in, uh, in analyzing the uh, current state of the Russian military operation. They both issue warning, public warnings to Zelensky, do not leave Ukraine, you know, uh, because that could that, that would be the perfect window of opportunity for the Russians to invade and, you know, I don't know, overthrow your government and then you have to go into exile or something. And, uh, you know, Zelensky leaves Ukraine, he attends the conference, he comes back, nothing happens, and then what? Are these guys now guilty of misinformation? I know it can <laughs> sometimes be trite to point out, like, blatant examples of misinformation or at least disinformative actions that uh, never get labeled as such. But, I mean, this is clearly one example of it. I mean, their warnings were pretty widely uh, propagated. And, uh, you know, it'll, people will just move on and... Their uh, vaunted expertise will continue to be sought after. Yes, indeed. We have a lot of callers, a record number, I believe, for AM Live, which I'm going to credit to Michael. So thank you for getting up the interest. This is this is this is exciting. Aaron, you uh, owe me you owe me your career, frankly. <laughs> uh, so let's take calls, and uh, I'm going to ask everyone to be as brief as you can because we have. We no, I am everybody. asking you to please be long-winded <laughs> and imprecise. All right. Well, hey. Akuna Matata, Akuna Matata. You you have my directive and you have Michael's directive, so you you know you find whatever works for you. So Andrew, you are up, and uh, remember to unmute yourself when you come in. Hello there. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I'll try to split the difference between you guys. Um, the main thing I wanted to do is it's never a bad time to bring up how much the mainstream media sucks, the corporate media sucks, <clears throat> how they're just stenographers for the state, and how it seems like. Um, these experts, as Michael was talking about, they're not expert because of the job they actually do or the, uh, you know, the results they get or how predictive they are. They're experts because of the chairs they sit in. That's something Eric Weinstein says often. These people aren't actually experts. They're just sitting in the chairs of experts. And so we all have to listen to them. Um, but the main thing I was going to say is there's no real attempt to suss out based on Putin's previous actions. You know, you can look at history. There is a thing called history. Why is no so-called analyst or public commentator bringing up the history of Putin when he goes to invade a country? Does he lie about it first and then surprise you like a sneaky Russian? Or does he just say what he's going to do and then he does it because, you know, he's a dictator and he doesn't need to lie? They can't – they don't even look at history and say, okay, what is more likely to happen in this case based on his past behavior or, uh, you know, why would it be different this time? So just it's – I don't know. I, I'm sick of it and – I wonder if you guys ever think there's going to be a way to escape this paradigm of people just spouting State Department nonsense and cliche no, the answer propaganda. Is no. 
No, the answer is no. The answer to your question is no. There is no escape. Well, because there's no disincentive. I mean, sorry to jump in yeah. rudely, which I tend to do, but there's no disincentive for it within kind of mainline American institutions that you know ostensibly confer prestige. Right? I mean, getting stuff wrong about Russia or making wild proclamations about Russian intentions or Putin's, Putin's deep interior motives, I mean, getting that stuff drastically wrong doesn't redound to your disadvantage in any way. In fact, you know, people seem to like it. I mean, it generates excitement and, like, makes you seem serious or whatever. So, no, I don't see any reason why it's to stop it. There was one day recently when skepticism was cool. It was in style for a couple of days. It was when Matt Lee of the Associated Press was called a Russian dupe by Ned Price for challenging him and asking for the intelligence. And that's when everybody from Chuck Todd to um, everybody else had to pretend that they also found Ned Price's behavior to be unacceptable. And, of course, the, uh, the craft of journalism is all about questioning government claims. They all had to pretend as if they were like Matt Lee. But that died down pretty quickly. Now they're back to just you know the same old stenography. And as Michael says, there are no incentives – to do your actual job as a journalist <laughs> Nothing. So, and you're constantly, and if you do it, you're, you're confined to the fringes like Michael and I. <laughs> so, can I ask then? Yes. Hey, I've emerged from the fringes now. I'm considered mainstream actually. Okay. All right. I don't know. I don't know about you. Aaron, there's, no, uh, there's no consumer demand for a more serious, you know, perspective. Well, that's, that's the cool part. The problem is so much yeah. of this is just infotainment. No, that's the cool part. There is consumer demand, but that's the point. These people are such, Hacks that they don't care. They don't even, it's not even about cap, ca- capitalism and meeting the consumer demand anymore. Um, there, you know, obviously, like like look at the popularity of, of independent platforms. Look how many people probably now are turning to Joe Rogan than they, than they are to CNN. But that doesn't even matter because it's that's not they're they're not even there for ratings so much anymore. They're so just there to serve power. Then it kind of leads you to the conclusion that corporate state television isn't about even earnings or profits like we used to say but it's just now like google has youtube as a you know they make a loss on youtube for the control that it gives them over the media environment or we basically just to that's that's the state that's the state of things in america apparently now but even in manufacturing consent you know written in 1998 or, or written in 1988 you can you know read chomsky and herman point out that the media it's not even just about ratings and profits it's also there to serve up a worldview that's conducive to the interests of the people who own the media. The people who own the media want to see a worldview that reflects their own agenda. Um, and that's been going on for a long time. Whether or not there's a ratings or audience incentive or not, it, it's about, you know, reinforce, it's about narrative, um, narrative enforcement. That, that's what it's about, even if they suffer. So that's why none of these CNN hosts are being canceled right now, even though the ratings are all in the tank, is because they're ultimately serving their function of basically promoting the elite consensus. Yeah, I think the the commodity in their minds is more a sense of prestige than it is com- strictly commercial in that I don't think like CBS or ABC or CNN or whatever, I don't think that they, they think they're going to have a ratings bonanza if they stake out the most kind of hardline position on Putin or if they most you know, dutifully repeat whatever the latest supposed leaked uh, intel revelation is. Uh, But I do think that having an affiliation with those entities even today is, you know, indicative of some measure of prestige that one 
wields at least within those fields. Like when we talk, when Aaron and I talk about how well, we're in the fringe, it's not that we have no exposure, right? I mean, we have 188 people in this very call-in room right now, which is, you know, a nice turnout. Um, and, you know, we, we both have a number of opportunities to do stuff. Um, but we probably don't have the same, uh, at least perceived prestige that the people who have who, like, can appear on ABC News as an analyst, right? So, and in t- to, to be in that position, to, like, to appear on an ABC, right, you can't deviate from the current line regarding Russia. Um, so it's almost like a self-reinforcing, like, ideological conformity uh, tactic within institutions that are seen as conferring prestige. Maybe that's not the most seamless or non-clunky uh, formulation, but it's something along those lines that explains why these people and institutions operate in the way they do. I wish it was just about the money then because the psychological issues aren't going away. No, um, no, no. Thank you for your thoughts, and I do hope that uh, there is an avenue for some kind of more serious consumer to find this information like you guys and Michael. That's why I follow you both, obviously. Um, because it's it's un it's it's unspeakably evil what they'll do, what they'll play with, playing with war, playing with people's lives to maintain their prestige. It's disgusting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would also add one thing, and um, I talked about this when I filled in for uh, old Glenn on his uh, show when he was allegedly quote unquote traveling this past week. Um, and so, like, what is when we talk about the ideological kind of compulsion happening here? What is the nature of that? ideology like what is ideologically underpin underpinning this desire to kind of foster maximum conformity on this issue well <clears throat> i would point to how putin is now characterized throughout much of the media as well as kind of russia proper which is that they're like the um global pole of the alt-right i mean alt-right is not a term that anybody uses really anymore but back when, when that was in vogue Putin was seen as like the pulling the strings for the global alt-right movement. And what do they mean by that? You know, it's like, uh, you know, today it does exist in some form, but it's, you know, right-wing illiberalism, right-wing populism, you know, anti-democratic movements, whatever. You know, even saw some people on the CBC try to postulate that maybe Putin was even behind those trucker protests, right? And they, they tie... Putin with any kind of fledgling uh, uprising any, pretty much anywhere in the world, at least in the West, that seems to have some not-so-nice, uh, potentially kind of right-wing-leaning ideological component to it. Um, so that's, the, the, that's like the main contour of the current ideological war, I would say, that uh, compels people who want to be seen as possessing prestige to be on the opposite end. Whereas in the past, you know, the Soviet Union's uh, ideological opposition to the, the U.S. or the West, I mean, that was clearly defined through the, you know, capitalism versus communism kind of framework. Now the framework is somewhat more uh, variegated. Uh, but, you know, to the extent that it does exist, I think it has to be understood through the prism that I just tried to spell out, which includes, obviously, that... A lot of people in the U.S. think that Putin literally installed the greatest fascist menace the world has ever known into power in the U.S. And so his, you know, activity in Ukraine or his at least perceived activity in Ukraine is another extension of that. 
Um, so you know, that that's why that's one of the drivers, I think, of the current kind of ideological warfare um, and why conformity is such an imperative in in the institutions that we've mentioned. Michael, we're going to have to schedule a new call-in on why you have accused Glenn of allegedly traveling. That's what he, cause, uh, cause that, cause that's what he claimed, and there was no independent corroboration of it. Wow, I think you're taking skepticism too, maybe too far here. I mean, he, the, let like let the guy say whatever he wants if he's traveling or not. I mean, he you're filling in for him. You're not I don't think to... anything he says he says at face value, especially that, if, he's, if he's reduced to asking me to fill in. Uh, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. Well, you know, I wanted to say about Andrew's point about Putin's history. You especially cannot acknowledge uh, Russia's recent military history under Putin because it so undermines the current narrative used to justify this Ukraine drama. So the, the narrative about Putin is that he's this irrational actor who wants to reconstitute the Soviet Union, who threatens his neighbors at will. And the top examples of that are Georgia in 2008 and Ukraine in 2014. But the problem with though both those examples is you, you can't actually acknowledge what actually happened. And in both those cases, Russia was responding to external acts. In 2008, it's now uncontroversial. A, a European Union report established this. It was reported on in the BBC that Georgia attacked the region of South Ossetia first. And the reason they did that, we found out later, is because Dick Cheney and his allies encouraged Georgia to do that and basically hinted to them that the U.S. would have their back. Even as other... This guy Shakashvili had been sort of molded in the U.S., right? Yes, he did. And that he would have their back. He did, and to the point where after after all this failed, he went and lived as a he lived as a hipster in Williamsburg for a long time. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, Michael, I recall that resident. actually. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So 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 Shakespeare was encouraged by Cheney and his and his allies. Um, and by the way, one of Cheney's uh, deputies was Victoria Nuland, who's now serving under Biden, running his Ukraine policy, which is you know bodes very well for the current situation. Um, and so Georgia attacked South Ossetia, this breakaway region. And Russia responded, as everyone knew they would. And, you know, other people in the Bush administration had told Shekhasvili not to do it because he said, we're not going to have your back. But basically, Shekhasvili... Including Bush it. himself, and yes. according to that Andrew Coburn book that you mentioned the last time we did a call. Exactly on. right. Exactly right. But Shekhasvili went with Cheney, and he ended up getting humiliated. And now he's actually in prison inside, um, inside Georgia. After, by the way, a stint not only in Williamsburg, Brooklyn... But then in Ukraine, where he he became an opposition politician, a, a far, you know a, a far right politician in Ukraine for a bit, and then he went back to Georgia. And now he's in prison. So it just shows you what happens when you side with the Cheneys of the world. And then in 2014, you know the the narrative is that uh, Putin attacked Ukraine and seized Crimea uh, in response to a democratic re- uh, revolution. The actual reality is that. Uh, there was a coup in Ukraine backed by the U.S., including the key role of Victoria Nuland and Joe Biden, uh, and with the help of far-right forces inside Ukraine. And uh, Putin, facing the prospect of having Russia's most important naval base in Crimea under NATO control, took Crimea, uh, where the vast majority of the population speaks Russian and supports Russia, if polls are to be believed. So that's And actually, at years in the years that that followed... The uh, quote-unquote annexation. I mean, Russia rejects that it was an annexation, but whatever. The accession of Crimea or whatever term you want to use. Public uh, polling actually showed that the approval of Putin increased. So it wasn't as if, you know, there was disillusionment uh, with Russian rule. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. within Crimea, to, Crimea toward of course. Russia. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Toward and, Putin. And, and also in, in, inside Russia, too, it was also widely popular. In fact, you couldn't be a politician in Russia on, on any end of the spectrum, whether you're Navalny or you're Putin, without supporting the, the annexation of Crimea. It was just, it was just deemed to be that, that vital to, to national security. Yeah, Aaron, let me, let me put to you a question just to cover our, our tracks and make sure that we're not just accused of being 100% pro-Kremlin toadies, um, which is that you know, Putin or, and people, other people in the Russian government now have been taken to alleging that there's an imminent genocide in eastern Ukraine, right? Um, or and there were reports about how uh, mass graves yeah. were supposedly uncovered um, from dating, which seemed to date back from the 2014 portion of the war, but it's not exactly clear. Uh, either way, and that those the, the uncovering of those mass graves or alleged uncovering was reported in some Russian media outlets that I could see. Um, and the, uh, the Putin did seem to use a similar logic when the 2008 Georgia war happened. Yeah, it, it clearly was, or all accounts indicate that it was prompted by Saakashvili, right? But then Russian forces did advance further into Georgia. You know, they didn't take capital or anything, but they maybe went further than might have been strictly necessary just to ward off that attack against Russian peacekeepers in 2008. So, like, what do you make of this uh, seeming tactic to invoke the specter of, like, a looming genocide, uh, which doesn't seem to have a whole lot of evidentiary basis to it, or or does it? Because, you know, that could... I mean, the U.S. has used that as a pretext on plenty of occasions, so it wouldn't shock me if Russia did the same thing. Well, no, uh, genocide no uh, strikes me as to- uh, genocide strikes me as totally overwrought and seems to me just basically propaganda to rile up domestic support for Putin. I don't think there's an actual serious threat of a genocide against Russian speakers in Ukraine. Now, there are people in the Ukrainian armed forces who do have really fascistic views and really Russophobic views towards the people in the Donbas and do want to eliminate them. I mean, people have espoused that. One of the key battalions in the Ukrainian forces is the Azov Battalion, which this this week, which and just to actually to underscore their importance in Ukraine, they put on a media stunt this week that everybody in the West fell for, including NBC News, which, you know, if everyone saw this, that that training session for Ukrainians, including a great grandmother learning how to fire a rifle, that was put on by the Azov Battalion, which was founded as a as basically uh, a far right militia by include. One of its founders was a neo-Nazi, and it, and it maintains neo-Nazi ties. So these people do exist, but the, the actual threat of the genocide, no. I, I think that's just kind of propaganda for the Russian audience. In terms of mass graves, I, I have no idea. I do know that there was atrocities in 2014. There was that Odessa fire uh, committed by supporters of the, of the coup that killed many people. So, you know, it, it's po- the, the prospect of mass graves, I wouldn't rule it out. But I certainly think that... To, for Putin to use the word genocide, that strikes me as just in the realm of propaganda, not actual facts. Yeah, I mean, the explanation for why he's taken to invoking the specter of genocide uh, is um, 
seems is given the formative experience that the Kosovo intervention was for him. You know, the NATO intervention in Kosovo was for him in the what was it ninety nine. Yeah, um, where you know, the, the ninety-eight, ninety-nine, yeah, which where was the pretext? The pretext was that the the Western forces needed to stop a genocide um, for you know the good of all humankind, and it you know invoking that does seem to make everybody fall in line. Same <laughs> um, with Libya when too. the U.S. does it, whether it's Libya or whatever. Yeah. So I, I don't. Again, the the salience of the tactics seems to have been borne out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and by the way, uh, Peter Hitchens, I don't know if you saw this, wrote a column on the Azov Battalion uh, issue this, this, uh, this weekend um, where he made the point that, you know, uh, if, uh, you know, there were a Nazi detected amongst like, Trump supporters or you know, Brexit supporters, the BBC would have had an absolute field day with it. And as well, they should in his estimation. But they all nonetheless fell for this PR stunt where the um, overt fascistic militia and Ukraine was given, you know, flattering, flattering media coverage, which uh, you you chronicled well. I mean, it's just. And I know he's also been on your side on on uh, serious stuff as well. So. He, he has, but just the story is so insane. I mean, there's you know, like NBC NBC News, so much purported concern for extremism and racism in the U.S. So that's what they profess to care about. Here you have an NBC News chief foreign correspondent participating in an outright media stunt by a fascist far right. And I would say neo-Nazi militia and nothing. There was no apology, nothing. They got a few media inquiries about it, including by Fox News, which is funny, but they didn't respond. And um, it just it, it shows how much they really care about extremism and the far right. They they don't. And by the way, on this point, something happened recently, which I haven't had the time to write about yet because there's been too much going on. But a there was a uh, declassified report from the U.S. from the U.S. National Intelligence Council on Russia's uh, relationship to the global far right. And if you remember, for ever since Trump got elected, this talking point was that Russia was responsible for white supremacy all around the world. You know, uh, it was, there was possibly Russian support for Charlottesville, um, right. and Russia was training the far right everywhere. Okay, listen to what the U.S. intelligence community concluded. It found, quote, we lack, we lack indications of Russian government direct support such as financing, material support, training, or guidance to right-wing movements outside of Russia. And inside of Russia, they found that you know, some right-wing movements exist, but they're actually facing a harsh crackdown from the Russian government. This is a U.S. intelligence report, and I, I assume it was done basically to conform to the Democratic Party talking point that Putin was responsible for uh, Trump and the far right everywhere. And this is their conclusion, and of course, nothing. There was no media report report about it whatsoever. And it, these are the kind of things where there's all these extraordinary claims about made about Russia. It's taken for granted that they're true. Putin is behind the far right everywhere. It's sort of taken as like as true as the sky is blue. And then countervailing information comes out, and it just doesn't even register. Yeah, I mean. I tend to be, I think, fairly plugged in, and I didn't even see that. So now yeah, I have some. Go- I have some googling to do. I'll send it to you. And in fact, I'll okay. I'll post a link at the to the notes of this episode. Okay. And uh, let's take our next caller, Henry. When you come in, just unmute yourself by clicking the microphone in the bottom right. I appreciate your work. Um, my very quick question is about actually what you were talking about with regards to referendums and polling, because um, Kim Iverson. I know did a monologue uh, maybe a week or two weeks ago 
where she, during that monologue for Rising, it was mentioned that um, in 2014, there was a referendum in Crimea and apparently 95% of people in that referendum, 95% of Crimeans, and it was also like a high turnout rate, uh, voted in favor of joining Russia. Now, people, I guess, disagree with that, but even people that disagree, everyone agrees that like the polling at the time showed that at least 70% of people in Crimea were in favor. And I didn't know that until recently, and that kind of changed my perspective because at least naively for me, it's like, seems to me like, a win-win situation then if almost all of the population were to support that. But then my question is tying that into this current situation, should Ukraine have a referendum? Um, and what do we know about like, what would that percentage be? And does it even matter? Like if that percentage is, let's say 30%, obviously maybe not for the whole country, but for only the specific parts of Ukraine that are in question for this conflict. But yeah, but like, my question is why hasn't, polling of ukrainians really been in the spotlight because i certainly haven't seen any reports i have no idea what the percentage is but i do know if it was if it was anything like what happened in crimea then it seems like that would be a really relevant statistic for us to know going into this conflict well i'll say this if you look at polls up until about 2014 a majority of ukraine was consistently against nato membership after 2014 and you have this proxy war breakout and the attendant suffering as a result, support for NATO membership increased in part in, in Western Ukraine. Um, now, but the problem is the polls started from that point on excluding the Donbass region, where which is now fighting the Ukrainian government and where the majority of the population speaks Russian. So those polls are skewed because they exclude a major part of the Russian supporting population. But still, if you even just looking at the at the remaining government held areas, I do think you can see support for NATO increasing, although not by I think by an overwhelming amount. Like the country still strikes me as pretty split. And it's also I guess, you know, I think part of the point of the coup in 2014 and kicking off the proxy war was basically to force Ukrainians to choose, as the U.S. often does, um, between a Western-oriented Ukraine or a Russian-oriented Ukraine, not having Ukraine be neutral. That's always been, I think, the solution for Ukraine is having it be neutral because you have people who despise Russia, don't want anything to do with it, but you have people who identify with Russia, and in fact, Russia is their first language. And the U.S. and its allies, I think, in 20, late 2013, 2014, back when the head of the National Endowment for Democracy was calling Ukraine the biggest prize, made a very fateful decision to basically force Ukraine to choose between one or the other, to basically not accept neutrality. And I think as a result of that, because of the suffering that's resulted from the war that's broken out, uh, maybe in some areas support for NATO membership has increased. But certainly if you take into account all of Ukraine, including the Donbass, I still think you have a very divided country. Yeah, and on the point of uh, polling, I would recommend people Google this Washington Post article from March 18th, 2020 headline is six years and 20 billion in Russian investment later, Crimeans are happy with Russian annexation. And uh, I doubt the Washington Post would have published that particular article if the evidence weren't fairly overwhelming. Um, and the survey actually was conducted by a firm that's regarded as you know reputable and neutral by these, these academics. 
and they summarize their findings as such. Here, quote, here's what we found. Support for joining Russia remains very high, 82% in 2019, and it is especially high among ethnic Russians and Ukrainians. But a key change since 2014 has been a significant increase in support by Tatars, a Turkish Muslim population that makes up about 12% of the Crimean population. And uh, support among that group had gone from just 39% in 2014 to 58% in 2009. Sorry, 39% in 2014 to 58% in 2019. And, you know, purported abuses against this, you know, Muslim minority population in Crimea had served as the basis for a lot of Western complaints about, you know, Moscow's abuse or its, you know, abridgment of international norms or whatever in Crimea. Um, so that's sort of an interesting finding that you think would maybe get a little bit more airing, especially now as, you know, national and international attention has uh, focused on Ukraine and the issue of uh, Crimea's status gets kind of resurrected. Uh, but, you know, not a whole lot of attention paid to that, although it uh, is it is pretty interesting. Now, uh, I guess... Aaron, I, I'll push back on you just from a devil's advocate standpoint because, again, I want to cover our bases so that we're not accused of being Kremlin sutures, although we are, ultimately. Um, you know, somebody could say, you know, okay, so so what that people in Crimea, if you look at opinion polls, which maybe have dubious methodology, maybe they have sound methodology, we don't know with complete certainty. But, you know, regardless, Russia still did launched some kind of military operation where they, by force, you know, changed the borders of Ukraine in 2014 and took Crimea under its own jurisdiction. I mean, isn't that not something that we necessarily want to encourage nation states to do, even if there are maybe certain external contingencies that make it seem justified? Like, under Obama or under Biden or let's say Hillary Clinton or something, you know, there might be parts of Texas or wherever in the U.S. that if they were to hold a referendum, you know, maybe would want to declare independence and be governed by, I don't know, Hungary or something um, because they just like the Demo- they dislike the Democratic administration that much. Um, in other words, what what Russia did in Crimea can't be just accepted as a... Um, except, you know, a, a defensible practice for for nations in, in the modern era, can it? I mean, I agree, but there's there, there's a key thing, which is that there was a coup in Ukraine right before Russia took Crimea. I don't think Russia took Crimea just because there was a referendum. I mean, there was a referendum in the Donbass, and they want to join Russia, but Russia didn't take that. Um, they took Crimea because, well, first of all, Crimea used to be a part of Russia, before it was gifted to Ukraine under the Soviet Union in the 20th century. So there's that. But putting that aside, uh, there was a coup in Ukraine. And from Russia's point of view, they can't accept that either. They can't accept Victoria Nuland literally choosing who the next prime minister of Ukraine will be. I mean, that's what we learned from that leaked phone call that was intercepted by either Ukraine or Russia at the time, where Victoria Nuland and the Ukrainian ambassador talked about receiving Joe Biden's um, a blessing to pick the next Ukrainian prime minister, Yatsenyuk. And that's exactly who came into power after a coup in Ukraine a few weeks later. So Russia was responding to that. 
So if we don't want Russia or any state to seize territory that's not their sovereign territory, we, we shouldn't launch coups that provoke them into doing that. Because again, um, like the point of Stephen F. Cohen, the, the late Russia scholar, was always that any rational Russian leader, no matter what side of the spectrum they were on, whether it was Putin or Navalny or anybody else, would have done exactly that. Because a Russian leader just can't countenance having this critical naval port being under NATO control. They just can't. And that's, that was a serious prospect at the time of the 2014 coup. They were, you know, the, the coup government was talking about joining the NATO alliance. That was a key goal of theirs. And so Putin's annexation was a response to that. So, yes, we can't count in its, you know, annexations of territories. But before that, we can't count in its coups that made that annexation happen. And I don't think Putin would have taken Crimea if, if, not, for the, if not for the coup. Yeah, and by the way, Putin now says that should Ukraine seek to join NATO at some point in the future, and this is why NATO enlargement is, at least according to Putin and other top Russian officials now, such a vital issue or even more vital than it had been, is that you know should they uh, seek to join NATO, um, then... Russia would be declared to be illegally presiding over NATO territory in Crimea, which would precipitate potentially a Europe-wide yeah. war or, you know, a transcontinental war even, or a transatlantic war given, you know, the U.S. and Canada's membership in NATO. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Crimea in that sense remains sort of a live issue in terms of how uh, Russia appears to perceive uh, its interests in Ukraine and its... Um, visions for what kind of conflict could potentially arise from uh, NATO enlargement coming to Ukraine. And, you know, for more on this, I'm going to link to an article that was recently in Jacobin that I thought was fantastic, just about the origins of the of this crisis in that 2014 coup. And it's if you read media coverage in the U.S., you just cannot mention it. You can't mention that Victoria Nuland and John McCain and Chris Murphy and all these people flew over there, encouraged these protests that that then led to this coup, and we found out that the U.S. was playing a key role behind the scenes because Victoria Nuland's phone call was intercepted, where she was where she literally picked the incoming Ukrainian prime minister. And so it's like, if you don't believe in in foreign interference, then you have to start with a, with opposing the coup, which came first. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate your answer. And there's an interesting ethical question I think that you bring up about the annexation, because I remember on Twitter, someone asked Kim Iverson, well, a similar question like, hey, well, what if a million Canadians moved to Long Island and decided to, and they all voted and they all wanted to, you know, to, to make it part of Canada? Like, would you say that they should? And Kim Iverson actually responded saying, yeah, well, that's democracy. If a million Canadians moved to Long Island and voted to become part of Canada, you know, wouldn't it be anti-democratic for that to not allow that? But I could also see – and it also seems kind of anti-democratic to say, well, no, you have to stay part of this regime. And I guess it could make sense if the regime was benevolent, but obviously every major world power you know, commits crimes and whatnot. So you could always justify leaving, especially if enough people voted for it. So it just, it just kind of – I feel like it's a conflict between like liberal democracy – and also like international norms. Yeah, there's some dicey implications there, perhaps from an American standpoint, because I mean, what was the Civil War? Well, it was states 
appearing to exercise their right to self-determination by seceding from the union. Um, and so now secession is illegal um, in every state, except perhaps Texas, which has some kind of secession clause allegedly in its constitution that Texas politicians like to rant about every time there's a new Democratic administration in office. So they can like so, like uh, bleat about the uh, threat of them maybe wanting to leave the union to preserve gun rights or whatever. Um, but yeah, so there's some, some uh, ominous historical overtones with self-determination taken to that extreme anyway in the U.S. But as far as millions of Canadians flooding into Long Island, well, maybe that's about to happen with all the besieged uh, truckers. Um, so I wouldn't, wouldn't rule out the possibility that uh, Nassau County could be annexed by, <laughs> I don't know, Ontario or something. Well, I welcome our new Canadian overlords, and I, I hope to even participate as a Canadian myself in the uh, Dominion over... I forget that you're um, a dirty foreigner, Aaron. <laughs> uh, Henry, thank you for the call. Thanks. Appreciate it. Appreciate your work. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We have so many more calls, more than I'm ever used to. So we're going to have to, Michael, you and I are going to have to be a bit more efficient with our brusque. Okay. Brusque. Exactly. All right. Reed, you are up. Hey, thank you so much. I'll be really quick. I'll try to be on the brief camp. Um, So I live in New York City and I have a lot of friends who are very clear that CNN and MSNBC are not places to get information from. However, they still read the New York Times. They'll still read The Atlantic and a number of other sources that are questionable. So I guess my question to both of you is like, yeah, we can criticize the media all we want and tell them how bad they are. And they are. They're terrible. And that includes all the major networks as well. But where can I get some ammunition for them to sort of see a different side before I have no friends left? That's kind of a joke. But yeah, you know, if possible. Thanks. Well, uh, first of all, Reed, I wouldn't recommend <laughs> the disowning your friends just because they read the New York Times. I mean, it seems like you might want to get your priorities in check. Not saying that you're about to do that. Oh, I'm but, joking. But, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know Aaron, I think Aaron and I both read the New York Times. I mean, you kind of have to, right? I, I would actually draw a distinction between reading the New York Times and just passively sitting there um, loafing in front of CNN and MSNBC, which pretty much just use the New York Times as their source material. I mean, I know they do their own reporting as well, but you know, the New York Times is still kind of like the the mainframe of the media ecosystem in the U.S. in a lot of ways. So I don't think you can really not read it, or at least not read it as regards a major issue like Ukraine, where it's going to be the one of the repositories of. U.S. government leaks and, and whatnot. You just have to kind of read it with a skeptical eye or um, read it with a certain kind of uh, level of awareness that goes beyond just taking everything at face value. I don't know if you can encourage that skepticism among your friends um, where, you know, don't get into the nihilism that you often see on some more right-wing circles where they're just saying everything's fake news or whatever. That's not really true. Uh, but often, yeah, the New York Times is beholden to a narrative that uh, advances the kind of national perceived national interest of the U.S. or the whatever the U.S. government's ge- uh, geopolitical prerogatives are. So I, I would say I- instead of rat- just kind of ignoring or disregarding some of these kind of ubiquitous media outlets that everybody in the media does read, even if they have criticisms of it, I, I would just encourage maybe a diversification of the news outlets that they 
patronize. I know you're asking for more concrete examples of <laughs> some of those. Other I mean, Reed, outlets, what do you, but, yeah. Reed, Reed, what do you go to? What What do you go to for for alternative information? Uh, I go to you guys, and I go to Glenn. I go to Matt Taibbi. I go <laughs> to. I mean, I do breaking points. I do, but all of the you know and look these are friends of mine who are really smart people but they don't have time in their day that sure. i do to sort of analyze some of this stuff and i've taken time over the last few years to look at this and be like wow this is really off and now i'm looking at this from a whole different perspective so i'm trying to get them to sort of see a different angle i had a conversation with one of the smartest people i know about joe rogan recently and i said to her i said hey so what do you know about joe rogan she's like oh he's right wing right like one of the one six instigators and i my head exploded because i was like jesus like where are we that like even the smartest people i know have like no time in their day to like analyze information in a way that brings them a real true perspective ukraine is really a big one because like here look at the new york times today if you just go to their page right now nothing around the macron discussion around a ceasefire nothing and I just like, of course, they don't have time. They're just looking at like, okay, we're still in war and we're still in a bad situation. That's all they do. Wait, didn't Joe Rogan steal the hard drive from Nancy Pelosi's office <laughs> and mail it to Russia? <laughs> yeah. No, look, it's, exactly. it's very difficult. It, it's it's like uh, there's not there's so many parallels to QAnon. I mean, I, I call it Blue Anon, and not because I'm <laughs> but not but not because I'm trying to disparage anybody, but because it's a similar thing. Not, you know, not, if you read the New York right. Times, if you read the Atlantic. If you if you listen to um, if you listen to the daily the New York Times podcast, you're part of a community, and yeah. the community advances narratives that sort of reinforce your own class position in life, um, and don't really challenge any of the underlying assumptions that basically run the society that you're benefiting from if you're a privileged coastal liberal. So it's it's difficult to wean someone off of that, and. Um, I don't really have any specific advice. I just look. I have plenty of friends who don't agree with me politically. They, um, you know, they, they, and they also read the Atlantic and things like that. And I just, you know, I just try to then have to accept. I, I, I try to accept where people are at and try not to make politics such a such a um, important thing. And just um, hope that one day on their own they'll come to their own conclusions. And if they ask you for suggestions, I mean, then you got to just go with what what sources you trust the most and what is most effective for you, because that's what will be most effective for them. Yeah. I, and I, I, think, I totally agree. And I, and I, all I'm saying is I just want to move us forward a little bit and I want to make room for someone else, but thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Just, just one more quick thing, Reed, that occurs to me as sort of maybe just a rule of thumb. I, I, I would suggest trying to add rather than subtract by which I mean, Give them supplementary materials more so than encouraging them not to read something or to like forsake some media outlet that they're in the habit of reading. Because, you know, I can't be a hypocrite. I'm actually a paying subscriber to the New York Times, the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. It's like the most normie news consumer on the face of the earth just because like you kind of have to read it. Of course. To know what those outlets are up to. Right. And then you can critically analyze them or whatnot. Um, so I, I guess, yeah, I, I, would, I would maybe try to supplement their understanding of these stories more so than asking them to just, you know, give up on outlets that in most kind of normal people's lives in New York City, I mean, New York Times is a reputable publication. It is in certain respects, but you can't just have a mindless kind of consumption attitude toward it. You have to actually 
trying to broaden your your horizons in terms of what what is viable information to consume. You guys are the best. Thank you so much. Have a great night. Thank you, Reed. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Okay, the next caller is Jai Seek and oh, sorry, Jai Seek. These callers. And, I mean, I know the thing. The app is called Colin, but I don't know. What do you prefer to call them, Michael? <laughs> um, Friends? In, in, interlo- in, in, interlocutors? Interlo- that sounds really great. <laughs> the next interlocutor. <laughs> yeah. On co- yeah, okay. Uh, uh, Michael Tracy's suggestion as part of So, G. Siak, you've been entered into the interlocutor room, and yes, there you go. Hello? Hi. Can you hear me, Mr. Mate? Yes, I can. Okay, that's great. Oh, I have nothing really to add to this discussion at hand. The Ukraine crisis. Well, that's that's what we want to hear for someone to lead off the well, <laughs> well, well, I'm just exceptionally bored this evening, and I decided not to be a spectator tonight. Just wanted to. I hope we've well, alleviated your boredom somehow. Yes, are you always alleviate my boredom? Mr. Mate and Mr. Tracy also. Well, that's why we're is here. It, any, all right. Well, that's, this is my favorite call comment and comment or, or interlocutor. No, yeah, no, any, no. any any comment or question no. you want to make? Because otherwise, we'll we have many people yeah. who hopefully hopefully are slightly less oh, bored. Yeah. yeah. Did you? Maybe I missed it. Did you discuss the Munich conference that took place recently? Michael Already? did mention the Munich conference, yes, how Zelensky went there, even though that was very bad optics for the U.S. government in trying to convince the world that Russia is about to invade. And Zelensky went there anyway. And by the way, he said something very funny. He said something about this is not about defending Ukraine. This is about defending Europe. The suggestion being that Russia is not just poised to invade Ukraine, but also the rest of Europe, I think, is what he was trying to get at. If, that's, if I interpreted him correctly, which I thought was very funny. Um, but unfortunately, not funny at a time of such, you know, high stakes. But yeah. Any, anyway, so yes, we did discuss the Munich conference. And uh, and Applebaum was really there. She was there. You can go uh, look up coverage from DW. I actually don't know offhand what that stands for. It's the German outlet that was covering it, and they did you know yeah, on-site they- interviews with all the. Typical crew of American spooks who uh, jet-setted there over to Munich, including Gas and Applebaum. Oh, and, right. Who is just, I like how she's just introduced as an analyst and historian. I almost want to make that my title. I mean, who's to say I'm not? <laughs> Did she happen to give a speech at one of the podiums? I don't know. You know, I didn't see the whole thing. Um, I know she was there physically, and she was interviewed by this... This German media okay. outlet. She may have participated in a panel or something. I wouldn't be surprised. Ji, thank right. you for the call. Thanks for calling in. Thank you. Asman, you are up. Hi, uh, thank you. Um, mine is just more of a quick question because um, we're noticing like a lot of like splits happening even with Europe and the U.S. Uh, as far as the messaging goes, like with uh, Macron and also even like you, we saw like recently at the height of the crisis, like even Latin American presidents were actually going to Russia to just talk business. Like what would this mean for the fate of NATO if the neoliberals like were in power right now are not guaranteed a re-election? Now? Like someone like Trump, who is actually not really stalked about NATO comes in. What would that mean for Europe? Like will the big 
uh, European nations start leaving, or am I just being naive and, and uh, underestimating like the messaging of the national security? Like when shit hits the fan, we all stick together. Well, you know what's funny, actually, Michael. Uh, today I was looking through some old tweets, and you had such a funny tweet. It was about Yamish Alcindor, who is a correspondent now for, of course, who's risen yes. up. The, I'm, I don't know when, what year that was, but whatever year it might have been, she's so since you risen were, through the ranks to even greater prominence. You were making fun of a question that she had posed to Jake Sullivan, where she asked him about, and literally, this is a direct quote from her. How Trump had traumatized, I'm traumatizing is a quote, exactly. traumatized NATO, yeah. NATO allies because of his hostility to NATO. And, and I just thought that was so funny. And that was the, um, that was the kind of dominant talking point, that, tr- that Trump was going to ruin NATO. And because he was being critical of NATO. But the whole point with Trump is what he said on the campaign trail had no relation whatsoever to how he governed. He appointed the most radical hawks, I think he could possibly find until his final month or two in office. And they all, you know, continued the same Cold War policies. They tore up all, you know, these vital nuclear treaties with Russia. Um, He might have gotten NATO uh, allies to pay more for military spending, but that's not exactly... Uh, but that like, strengthens NATO. I mean, that's, exactly. that's, that's yeah, the irony, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, there was this NATO summit. I don't know if people remember it from summer of 2018 when the commentary in the U.S. had an utter meltdown where they're saying that the world order is on the verge of collapse because Trump <laughs> made a few wisecracks yeah. or he tweeted something uncouth. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, I mean, even in office, he would make some occasional uh, indications that he had maybe like an inchoate, skepticism toward aspects of NATO. But the end result of it was that he was just trying to extract further funding commitments, which, again, ultimately strengthens NATO. So Trump was actually the best thing that could have happened to NATO in a way, because they showed that even somebody who ostensibly might have reservations about the utility of NATO uh, serving as American president uh, didn't actually jeopardize the ultimate status of NATO. And meanwhile, meanwhile, Biden comes in, and what is one of her, his first major scandals where he basically sells out France, throws France under the bus, and basically gets Australia to buy uh, U.S.-made submarines instead of French submarines, and basically tells France to, like, to, to like bugger off. Yeah, France and- <laughs> recalled its ambassador to the U.S. for the first time since yeah. the Revolutionary War under yeah. Biden. Yeah. And now— <laughs> the, most, and- the, the most, uh, the most you know, longstanding ally of the U.S., has this fallout with Biden, who's supposed to, who ran on a platform of like uh, restoring relations with our most trusted ally. Yeah, and just you know, last week Biden uh, stands next to the German Chancellor, and he announces that if Russia invades Ukraine, that he will definitely cancel the Nord Stream two gas pipeline, even though of course the Nord Stream two gas pipeline has nothing to do with the U.S. It, it runs from Russia to Germany. And the German chancellor is humiliated because he will not agree, even with Biden next to him, to cancel the pipeline. But Biden is just declaring in front of his face that Biden himself, um, asserting dominion over German territory, will cancel the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. I don't recall Trump doing it. I'm sure Trump did something similar. But the point is, you have Biden insulting NATO allies, um, just as Trump was accused of, but yet for some reason it, it's not a scandal right now. Oh, thank you guys. It's not as crass, right? Or it's not done through tweets, or it's not done in a way that's going to trigger one of these meltdowns that were so common throughout the entire Trump 
tenure. Um, well, it's certainly yeah. not going to anger the U.S. media class, but it is angering officials in Europe. I mean, I mentioned before the, uh, those comments from European officials complaining in the Washington Post that the U.S. has not shown them any intelligence showing this imminent Russian invasion and that they feel left out. And, you know, German officials speaking to the Wall Street Journal, I quoted this in my, my most recent article at Substack, uh, say that basically the U.S. policy of flooding Ukraine with weapons and threatening sanctions on Russia is adding to instability in Europe. So there is actual some anger, at least in Germany, and I bet France as well, uh, about the U.S. policy. But those, those voices just don't get trumpeted because they're, they have the wrong message. Well, and this is why uh, Macron a few weeks ago uh, announced that he was going to pursue a diplomatic path with Russia that completely bypassed the U.S. Yes, um, that's right. Or, you know, that followed a different track. And so Macron, he went to Moscow, you know, he had that photo op at that bizarrely elongated table that Putin has, which was, you know, mocked and whatever. But apparently, you know, they're now potentially on the cusp of some kind of diplomatic breakthrough. Who knows how it will pan out. But so I I doubt any of this is going to lead to the dissolution of NATO necessarily. But you would think that some of the European member states would be questioning the wisdom of like the imperatives of NATO being so dominated by the U.S. I mean, look where it gets you. Yep. 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 It's also threatening much higher energy prices for Europeans this winter if Russian energy is cut off, you know. But again, all this is just is supposed to be subordinate to whatever the U.S. And look at Germany. I mean, Germany has been raked over the coals in the U.S. media, particularly the new uh, chancellor, because yeah. they were seen as not assertive enough in their you know support for U.S. goals in Ukraine, um, which means because you know Germany has now which a means, which means insufficiently subordinate to the U.S. Right, that's what insufficiently not being subordinate. Enough. Right, um, and you know one of the manifestations of that supposedly was that Germany has this kind of political culture where they're uh, very averse to sending wep- you know lethal weaponry anywhere. Um, you know, that stems, um, as I understand it, from, you know, understandable um, guilt over World War II. You mean um, killing And the U.S. is now is trying to pressure them to, you know, <laughs> yeah. to, to, to forsake all that and, you know, give up on making amends for the, like, the worst war catastrophe ever in uh, yeah. human history and to just, you know, start sending lethal weaponry to Ukraine as though that's really going to make anything of a military difference. I mean, yes, sure, you guys had the Nazis who killed millions and millions of Russians, but it's in the past now. Let's let let's send some weapons. Let's send some javelins. Let's get some weapons going. Um, that's the U.S. attitude. It's uh, it's pretty. Um, but remember, Aaron, the uh, grenade launchers that were in the, the uh, latest shipment that Biden authorized using some tricky workaround that didn't need to be approved by Congress in, in December, uh, that latest shipment included grenade launchers that are manufactured in the U.S. And everybody can rest assured that when uh, in the event that grenades start exploding, um, there's going to be a careful analysis that shows that they were merely defensive grenades. Oh, yes, defensive grenades, of course, of course, of course. Osman, thanks for the call. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Robin, you are next. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi, you guys. Thank you for taking my call. I really appreciate both of you. Um, I've watched you and listened to you and <laughs> for 
years and years. And I just really appreciate your pushback and your continued exposure of the Russian propaganda we've seen. It seems like just ramp up over the last, I don't know, five years or more. Um, specifically, Erin, when you did your, uh, your reporting on Syria and Bellingcat, I'm just um, today saw Bellingcat's Elliot Higgins on Clubhouse doing, um, you know, basically in their main politic room on Clubhouse, spouting out, you know, the imminent invasion of Russia was happening possibly while we were speaking here. I mean, it was just incredible how fast and how hard they're coming um, about Russia going in. And there was nobody in that room that was really pushing back. And I, I, I get upset with that because um, we as Americans have always been, you know, told how bad Russia is and this and that over the years, you know, and so we don't have a good grasp, I don't think. I've been digging in and going down the rabbit hole of just Ukraine by itself and looking at the Crimea thing and looking at the Minsk Accord and blah, 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 blah. I mean, it's complicated. And so it's so easy for propaganda to be spewed because we don't really have a good grasp of the history there for one and so i just wondered if you guys i mean when when you did that exposure on syria that's why the red flag for me today went up when i saw him in the room and i thought well i'm just going to go in and listen and sure enough he was spouting off you know basic propaganda narrative and i thought somebody asked him in there if you know what he does on his individual basis, you know, helps out United States Intel and this and that. And he denied it. And I thought, well, geez, all you have to do is read the Greystone article about it. And you can see that, you know, following the money that they're supported by the United States and UK, you know, kind of. Um, so, I, I mean, the uh, the military stuff and all of that. I mean, the CIA and all that. So I just I, I'm just uh, I'm kind of like with the guy before Reed, I think was his name. You know, it's really hard to talk about some of this as an American. They look at us like, oh, you're just, you know, supporting the Russians. If you speak up against, you know, my own country doing what I call, you know, trying to get us back into another war. So I just wanted to thank you guys for your continued, uh, you know, pushing back and um, exposing things so that some of us can really read and get down into those nitty gritty details. I mean, not everybody has time to do that, but some of us do. Well, that's and- the problem, right? That's the problem. Is, and that's how the system works so beautifully is people don't have the time to do these long research projects. And so if all they're being fed is the state line, and then you have these inventions like Bellingcat, which purport to be independent uh, open source intelligence, just using Google Maps to somehow always magically verify and conform to whatever the the uh, propaganda narrative of the state is at the time. It's very difficult to think any any differently because it, it's all you're exposed to. Um, like for example, the only time the OPCW scandal, this cover up scandal about Syria that I've been covering, uh, has been mentioned in the New York Times. It is only once, and it was buried at the bottom of a fawning profile of Bellingcat, of how great Bellingcat is. And the, the opinions of the OPCW scientists who actually did the investigation that was covered up, it was framed as being like in opposition to what Bellingcat found. As somehow Bellingcat, this group of like uh, people with no scientific credentials, funded by the U.S. government, funded by the British government, working in, in secret partnerships – with the British government, 
even though, by the way, leaked documents show that the British government doesn't actually rate them very highly. Uh, but still, somehow, the opinion of Bellingcat is deemed to be um, more important than what the actual OPCW inspectors found in Duma. And they mentioned the OPCW inspectors and their dissenting views and the, their allegations of a cover-up in one passing sentence and just described the um, body of evidence that was, that was suppressed by the OPCW as an email, just one email from one of the investigators, when really, actually, it's like a trove of leaked documents. So it, it's very difficult. If, if you're a New York Times reader, you literally would not know that the OPCW whistleblowers existed in case you happen to catch them at the bottom of a fawning profile of Bellingcat, which is a, a state-funded propaganda organ, which, of course, is not mentioned by the New York Times. You cannot find anywhere in all these fawning profiles of Bellingcat in The New Yorker, in The Washington Post, in The New York Times, you can't even find it acknowledged that they're funded by the National Endowment for Democracy. You know, it's not even acknowledged because, obviously, it doesn't align with the narrative that these are just these like group of like scrappy independent researchers as opposed to government-funded uh, information warfare agents. And in fact, it's even worse. Recently at the Gray Zone, a journalist named Click Clarenberg reported that Bellingcat's funding is not even just governments. It's also shady uh, private contractors, that, including many that have taken part in the dirty war in Syria, including Adam Smith International, which its claim to fame was in the Iraq War, when it was an Iraq War profiteer, and then it moved on to Syria. And so now Bellingcat is not just getting contributions from the U.S. and British governments, but also from private war contractors and profiteers. So um, it's very difficult, you know, and there's no answers except just to, you know, do your own research, try your best, try to speak to people respectfully, understand that they're not going to have access to the same information that you do, and try to point them to alternative sources. Well, careful, Aaron. Doing your own research now is considered dangerously anti-vax, Oh, okay. That's a new right. thing. Right. Um, I okay. would just say, uh, uh, Robin, this is one reason why I kind of urge people to have a latitude with just ordinary people who, as you mentioned, have limited time and resources to really do in-depth research or reading or listening on these topics. Because uh, it's not their fault that they're being fed a particular line by the um, institutions or the individuals in whom they place some degree of trust, but it is a reason why to have lots of scorn against the journalists who are paid and have all the time in the world to do this kind of in-depth research. Like, for example, just this past week, some people might have seen it, but I published on my Substack an interview with a Ukrainian member of parliament, and it wasn't the most intrepid investigative journalism in the world. I just got in touch with a Ukrainian member of parliament who spoke English and was able to conduct an interview. And this person, um, who is a member of Zelensky's party in Ukraine, so she, uh, she's not a um, some kind of pro-Russian zealot, not a member of a pro-Russian party, uh, but nonetheless, she had a very antagonistic view toward the influence of the U.S. government and media in fostering panic and crashing the Ukrainian economy and behaving, as she put it, in a, quote, crazy way that actually was a bigger threat to the Ukrainian state than any forthcoming Russian invasion, which she regarded as a minor threat or a remote prospect. Uh, Now, that, in theory, ought not to be too difficult of an interview 
for some of these major media outlets in the U.S. to score, right? It's not as though I have boundless resources that enable me to get this exclusive. Um, it's just a matter of my own kind of discernment, which is clearly lacking on the part of a lot of these American media outlets because they don't want to interrupt the narrative. And we've kind of speculated reasons as to why there is such an attachment to the current narrative. I, I tend to think that the whole impression of Russia being this uh, global puppeteer of the populist liberal right wing is actually probably the main driver in U.S. media. Um, but whatever the explanation may be, the, that kind of discernment is just totally uh, absent. And again, you know, this is a person in Ukraine who would have no incentive really to downplay the alleged risks posed by Russia, and yet she had done so. People can look up my Substack if they're curious. I know I've talked about it on Colin uh, a few times already this this week. Um, but that's just it's just one example of countless of how there are just so many like intentional blind spots. Uh, in the media that, you know, if if the average news consumer isn't aware of them, I think you just have to kind of acknowledge and accept that and, like Jar- Aaron alluded to, kind of gently nudge them toward more kind of uh, edifying sort And Robin, you know, it's a hard, it's, a, it's an especially hard time because of Russiagate, where Russiagate normalized this attitude that to, to, to like, adequately resist Trump and fascism then you have to worship the CIA and the FBI and everything that that they say and their attendant worldview, which includes having the Atlantic and the Atlantic Health and having a a hawkish posture towards Russia. And many people who were, you know, understandably afraid of Trump and and what his what he meant, you know, they were looking for answers. And so they they latched on to what was presented to them. And that was trust in the CIA, you know, blame all this on Russia. Everything is Russia's fault. Russia is responsible for not just Trump, but also sowing chaos that's responsible for, I don't know, everything under the sun. I mean, what hasn't been blamed on Russia at this point in the U.S.? So it's a difficult time, but I, I do think it will pass. These things can't last forever. It's just so thin. And, uh, you know, I, I like to hope in people's, in, in average people's, better judgment. I have no hope, as Michael talked about, for the media itself. It's completely, just anybody choosing to be a part of that world knows what they're getting into, and they're... And they're participating in it, but everybody outside of that, you know, I think there, I think there's a there's a good chance that common sense can prevail. Okay, thanks, guys. Thanks for your comments too. Thank you. Thanks for calling it. And Robert, you are next. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Big fan of both of you. Uh, I consider myself a right winger, but I really respect actual journalists, which I think both of you are. Um, Aaron, I talked to you a week or so ago, and one of the things that you mentioned on that show was. This idea that there's people at the State Department, I can't keep the name straight, might have been Ned Price, could have been Jen Psaki, that started to say things like, well, what we're trying to do is stop this invasion. When they say things like, you know, are, we have evidence that there's going to be this false flag. And it seems like... When yeah, that was blinking. Well, it's everybody now. It's the new line. It's, I love it. It's like, unlike Iraq, okay, okay, we know we lied to you about Iraq. Fine, okay, fine. Our bad. But this time, we're not trying to start a war. We're trying to prevent one. It's brilliant. It's a great line. Yeah, and, and everyone's and using so this it. Is, this is where I'm at listening to that. To me, that's an acknowledgement of something that I think we all inherently knew, but it's even more stark and dangerous in this situation, which is they're not really interested in telling the actual people that they're supposed to serve the truth. They think they have a higher calling, and I think the media goes along with this. You saw this with the Russiagate stuff. It was less about 
being journalists and more about stopping this great dictator, Donald Trump. And I think that regardless if you think it's nefarious intent or not, I do think it's nefarious, that these people at the State Department in our establishment in the intel agency, they're going to make excuses to lie to us if they think it serves their interests more. Given the fact that they're hinging this on, well, it's going to be a false flag attack. Russia is going to claim that they were attacked. But trust us, when that happens, it will be a false flag. That in conjunction that you see all of our European allies seeming to say, why won't the U.S. share their intel that they have even with us? And even Ukraine seems to be suggesting that. Am I a fool for thinking and being conspiratorial that there looks like there could be an attack on Russia, maybe from U.S. intelligence or from U.S.-backed people in Ukraine, and they're going to use that to gaslight us all to justify going into this situation because they think, at this point, it's obvious to me, the Biden administration and the intel departments think that it will be for their good to go ahead and back Ukraine if there's an attack. I try not to speculate, but what I do think is going on for sure is I do think that the U.S. is trying to sabotage the Minsk Accords, as I talked about earlier, and I won't repeat it, but I think with that, there could be maybe a green light from the U.S. to Ukraine or an encouragement to increase attacks on the Donbass. And uh, there's a blog called Moon of Alabama, which uh, I follow closely, which I recommend for everyone. By the way, the earlier caller, Reed, that is a source I recommend. Um, the problem is I don't know if your friends will like it because it's the, the, some of the things it says will might be seen as too... Uh, <laughs> It's, 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 it also has the aesthetic of a blog that's never been updated since 2002, <laughs> that which, too, but that's, yeah. that's part of its uh, appeal. Of it. Yes, that is true. Uh, but they, they pointed out that the OSCE, uh, which, monitor, which has monitors on the ground inside the Donbass, had published a map on Friday, and it showed that shelling inside the Donbass had nearly doubled, and the vast majority of the impact sites were on the side of the rebels inside Donbass. Now... It's possible that those shells came from rebels trying to launch a false flag to make it look as if they're being shelled. But if they actually were being being the targets of attacks from the Ukrainian government, then that shows that the Ukraine is stepping up attacks on the Donbass in order to provoke maybe some kind of uh, response that would then draw Russia in. I mean, that's, you know, I think that's fair speculation. But in terms of an attack actually inside Russia, there was, by the way, this warning today from the U.S., uh, to U.S. citizens to leave Russia because they have information about pending attacks. And they cited media reports, but I, I haven't seen anything alluding to that, so I'm not sure what they're talking about. So, look, it's totally fair to wonder and to question motives. I just, you know, it, it's just hard to predict. Yeah, I was just going to mention that, actually. Not, not only warning of attacks, they're warning of terrorist attacks at areas in Russia that are populated by foreigners. Um, so not only are they urging Americans to leave, they're urging them to avoid, you know, tourist sites and, um, similar types of venues where there, there could be a lot of Amer- uh, Americans present because apparently Russia is considering doing a false flag attack on one of these areas. I mean, who knows? The whole concept of false flag has already been turned upside down. I mean, Boris Johnson called the shelling or the apparent showing of the, the kindergarten in uh, Donetsk this uh, this past week, a false flag attack, which would mean, you know, in that scenario, the only perpetrator of the false flag could have been the Ukrainians, right? Because they would be attacking their own kindergarten, right? I mean, how could Russia have done a false flag? 
I mean, maybe the appropriation of the whole concept of false flag from the conspiracy sectors of the internet may confuse some people in power, which uh, is actually producing some amusing results, although this sort of miscommunication uh, doesn't seem like it's heading in a positive direction. All right. I got to cut in and take more calls because I want to get to everybody before we leave. So, Robert, thank you for calling in. Thank you both. Great show. Shamir, you were up. Shamir, if you're there. Yeah, there you go. Hello, yeah. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, hi. Uh, uh, thank you for this discussion. Uh, first of all, uh, DW means Deutsche Welle. Just to, sorry. And, oh. I, uh, and I wanted to uh, ask you about, there was a news in Al Jazeera about uh, the people, the residents in Donbass leaving to Russia. Uh, it was, I think, two days ago. Uh, so that's one thing, and I also wanted to ask you about like uh, the uh, uh, the coverage of uh, this conflict in the international media, like Al Jazeera and DRT, also like France 24 and DW and Lion. If you have any comments regarding that, I don't think they have been uh, very critical or like you. I mean, they are uh, kind of trying to be like BB. Right. So if you could comment on that, thank you. Well, you know, in terms of the evacuations, again, without being there, without knowing all the fears and intelligence underpinning it, I mean, that could just be a stunt as well. Um, I wouldn't put it past the rebels there and their Russian allies to sort of for dramatic effect and to try to gin up popular support to pull a stunt like that, to basically stage some symbolic evacuations to sort of um, up the ante. Or... I don't know, or maybe it's based on a genuine fear. I don't know. I, it's yeah, you know what? One, one of the problems here is that the foreign media coverage. Anytime you see it, it's overwhelmingly the case that it's some journalist who's been embedded with the Ukrainian military, right? Where they're given a photo op and a little interview opportunity with one of these soldiers in the trenches, and then the journalist is escorted around with. The, Zelensky is going to observe a drill somewhere or something. Almost never is there any firsthand reporting from one of these areas that's, you know, controlled by the separatists where you're kind of getting their perspective or or something you know, equivalent to the Ukrainian's perspective that's divulged in, in the vast majority of the media coverage. I'm not saying that the Ukrainian perspective ought not to be kind of elucidated, but there's zero balance at all. So it's um, it's difficult to give much of a firm opinion on what's potentially possible that the uh, the other side could carry out. But you know, I agree with Aaron that it's not outside the realm of possibility, given some of the rhetoric I mentioned earlier about an impending genocide or what have you. That uh, you know, something along the lines there of what he uh, outlined could be could be carried. Shamir, thank you. We're going to bring in John as the next caller. John, if you're the oh, okay. And Eric, you are next. So Eric, if you're there, you have to hit the microphone button in the bottom. There you go. Hello. Hello. Thank you. Um, So I think it's the second time I've talked to both of you. Um, So I guess, uh, um, did we talk about the Afghanistan and what Biden is doing with uh, the money there? We have not talked about that tonight, no. Well, something I tweeted, I guess... um, is just to think about the little thought experiment of what if instead of taking that money from the Afghans, we were instead thinking about taking that money from the Saudis in terms of their state responsibility for 9-11. Because 
you know, it really does drive you crazy. I mean, you know, being my age, you know, and growing up with watching this war and terror unfold, but you know how that really was an inflection point when you consider how insane it is that the people being punished for nine eleven, you know, were Afghanistan and then Iraq, uh, and uh, as well as that, uh, the Saudi relationship is is, is connection there is not really. Uh, well understood as much as you would think, especially when you consider um, the average Afghan doesn't even know what 9-11 is. I think the polling shows. Um, and of course, even if they did, you know, how much responsibility do they really bear? It's, I mean, it's so perverse because the idea that you're pitting the 9-11 families against these poor Afghans who did not have any say as to whether the Afghan government harbored Osama bin Laden or the other hijackers. So um, it, it, it really does. I mean, you know, I guess a lot of people are hammering on this theme of how do you explain this to a normal person just how insane this all is and how vindictive and cruel yeah i it's so vindictive and cruel and i don't know how to explain it it's just it's hard to fathom that decision by biden it's so cruel and it's always the people who endure the wrath of dc policymakers when they feel embarrassed um, in this case, Biden was embarrassed by how bad the withdrawal went from Afghanistan. So now he's taking it out even more on the people of, of Afghanistan. It's um, it's awful. Yeah, I know. I think, Eric, you did a reasonably good job just now of explaining it. Um, I mean, I would ask, if I were to, to be covering the story, I would go back and look at the people you know in the punditocracy and the elected officials and so on and so forth, who last summer were professing such a profound concern about the humanitarian toll that the Taliban returning to power in Afghanistan would take on on civilians, and uh, ask them, you know, what's your uh, latest thoughts <laughs> on this measure uh, or this action of the Biden administration, which clearly is exacerbating that toll. Um, not to mention the sanctions. Not to mention the sanctions that, uh, that are you know on. The Taliban, which prevent, you know, the provision of different supplies and basic goods that would, you know, benefit the just basic standard of life of, of, of Afghans. You know, go back and see, you know, how much uh, humanitarian concern those types are professing now. My guess is not very much. And maybe that could illum- illuminate something that could, you know, prompt a broader discussion about the insanity of, of this policy. But then again, you know, sometimes it's hard to generate too much interest in the uh, plight of foreign peoples who were subject to the whims of American policy. Well, and when we decry them as a society where, like, people are buying and selling children, boys and girls, well, what is making, what is this going to do to that? It's going to exacerbate that, right? I mean, the economic desperation of it, but at least we can say, you know, we we did something. You know, it's that American impulse to do something, even if especially if something is make it worse. Um, but I guess what I try to think about is, you know, if 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 after 9-11, you know, somehow Bush decided to liquidate the Saudi, you know, sovereign wealth fund, you know, that's that would be a lot different. It would be pretty irrational somewhat, but it would be still even more rational than it is than the whole pivot to Iraq. And then, of course, you know, occupying Afghanistan all these years. But uh, in any case, uh, thanks so much. Thank you, Eric. And I think the the bottom line is that Afghanistan has no power. They have nothing, you know, and the Afghan civilians have no lobby in Washington that can influence any decision, just like the civilians of Gaza and Iran and Venezuela and every 
subjugated population have no lobby in Washington. So they don't matter in the eyes of policymakers. That's just what it comes down to. Actually, kind of or a even, funny note. I, I knew that um, House of Cards was a ridiculous show when I first watched it because there was a scene where it was like, oh, he said something and the is- Israel lobby got mad. But then he said something and then the Palestine lobby got mad. It's like, oh, wow, this person who wrote this really understands American politics. Oh, yes, now. the powerful Palestine lobby. Yes, that's that's hilarious. Or even that's I was just going to quickly add the uh, Russian people don't have a lobby because the preferred, you know, retaliatory uh, measure that American politicians keep warning they're going to inflict should an invasion occur is to just throttle the Russian economy and wreak economic destruction on ordinary Russians who have nothing to do with the government. So, you know, maybe if there was a lobby in the United States that reflected their interest, there'd be a little bit more uh, pause taken before such an initiative were... You know, trumpeted as the, um, you know, the ideal solution. Um, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily drawing a hard equivalence between Russian civilian population and Afghan civilian population. But, you know, there is something to be said for the lack of, quote, voice that those Russians have in the U.S. where you can just speculate about all the uh, economic harm you can just freely wreak on them by cutting them off of, you know, financial systems and so forth. And, you know, nobody seemingly... All right, we are going to wrap in 20 minutes, so I want to try to get to every single caller before then. So, Eric, thank you for the call. And, Tim, you are next. Hey, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, first-time caller here. Sorry about that. Um, uh, Just wanted to... uh, Why do you apologize for being a first-time caller? I'm I'm sorry. I was being ironic. And you're also... Yeah, he's also joking, because Tim Tim has definitely called before. Sorry. Sorry, Michael. Different, different, uh, different show. Anyway, I want to try a big idea out on you guys. I think, um, I think we might be being putzes by treating this as a uh, media criticism exercise. Because actually, I think the whole point of this is to show the actual power of American media. It's like a firepower exercise in you know, in contrast to, you know, the demonstration or the threat or the explanation or the whatever of Russian actual military power. Um, and, and that's actually the drama that's going on right now. And I'll, I, and I'll try and illustrate this with something that's really simple. Um, Zarakova, who is the foreign minister uh, sorry, spokesman for the foreign foreign ministry in Russia had an amazing thread about two or three years ago, where she she um, basically reported what her American what do they call them partners um, said to her, and they basically said, "You don't understand, right? We can make you look however we want. It doesn't matter. You could be an angel, you could be a devil, you could be whatever." If you're an angel, we can make you the devil. If we are the devil, if you are the devil, we can make you into an angel, right? And so I think there's there's a funny aspect to this whole thing where um, it's a great strategic deficit if you think these people are trying to do the job that you guys are actually doing, right? And they're not trying to do that job, right? They are bought and paid for, just like Bellingcat. Bellingcat is the, the most absurd 
stove piping, most absurdly obvious stove piping exercise I've ever seen. You know what I'm saying? And so uh, the what I'm getting at is we're missing the point by taking these people seriously. And I don't think Russia does at all, right? I mean, and but it it also is another layer on how you understand media, how you understand PR, right. public relations, how you understand propaganda. Tell me what well, you think. I mean, I I'll just say quickly, and then I want to move on because I want to get to as many people as I can. Is that I, I take the I take the media seriously insofar as they have an influence. It's not as if I look at them as serious journalists who take their craft seriously. Of course not. I mean, that's one of the key points I try to make is that they don't take their profession seriously. But insofar as they have an influence, which they do, despite the lagging numbers for CNN and MSNBC, then it's important to you know assess the stuff that they put out and to critique it and to debunk it if if that's appropriate. Yeah, no, and that's, I mean, the ir- irony of me saying any of this is that I appreciate what you guys are doing, but I've been bugged by this idea that in the back of the mind, my mind, we're, we're only encouraging them. Do you understand what I'm getting at? I got you, but we don't have that influence, I don't think. We don't have the, I think, the means. No, we don't. Yeah. So, you know, I... I mean, I think, uh, Tim, you're right in the sense that to the extent that Russian officials respond to U.S. media reports, it seems to be uh, dominated by mockery and just open ridicule and sarcasm. Um, So, you know, I do think there is a place for that, not that I necessarily want to just mimic Russian uh, tactics, but, you know, they leave themselves open, meaning the media does in the U.S. for just open ridicule and mockery. Yeah, Uh, but, you know, but... But when you have stakes as high as it's being claimed that they are now with the potential of, you know, the biggest war on the European continent since World War II or whatever they're saying it may be, you know, it kind of does beget a certain level of seriousness, even if a lot of the claims are just patently absurd. Like, I must think taking them seriously and, like, rebutting them on their own on their own terrain uh, is is useful. Although, you know, it just has to be a mix of sarcasm and uh, quote-unquote seriousness. Although Just going full-fledged on one or the other um, probably doesn't work. Got to be Here, here. Andre, I'm bringing you in now. Tim, thank you for the call. Andre, if you're there, you got to hit the microphone in the bottom right to unmute yourself. Hey, guys, can you hear me? Yes. Hey, great show. Um, just a quick question. Have you guys... Uh done any or looked into or done any reporting uh, into the property fund in Romania and I guess Biden chief of staff involvement in that and first then uh, the next other question that I have yeah I just first I'm hearing I've never heard of that put my question out there yeah okay all right that's fair enough um, and where do you think the public discourse is going with Trump's uh, social prime to go live next month and if you're going to be part of that, or if not, why not? Thanks. Michael, are you <laughs> going to be joining Trump's True Social? <laughs> I didn't realize it was going live next month. Well, I think it was just launched this past week, wasn't it? He, he made his first post on it or something. You know, I don't really have a whole lot of optimism about any of these right-wing splinter social media platforms. First of all, there are too many of them. So, like, why do we need seven of these, uh, you know, quasi-Twitters 
competing with one uh, one another. It seems like it's uh, counter to their own interests in a way. And you're sort of diffusing your uh, potential user base. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't. I think it's just going to be a place where people go to see what Trump has, what Trump has to say. Although he's just he's still been emailing his uh, statements with the same level of, uh, of uh, frenzy as he always has been. So you know, might as well just continue with that. Um, I don't know. A lot of these platforms just seem like total idiocy to me. I mean, I remember looking at Parler when it first launched, and it was just like a uh, a sewer of just inane conspiracy theorizing. I mean, not that there, you can't find that on other platforms, but that seemed like just the the main thrust of it. So in terms of quality control, uh, I, I tend to have doubts. Um, but who- Yeah. I feel sorry for the right in the sense that the shutting down of Parler was, I mean, whatever, and I agree that Parler was a cesspool, but they have the right to free speech, right? If you actually take free speech seriously. And shutting them down was just ridiculous, and they got screwed, and that took away. The, oh yeah, of course. I mean, just for the record, I totally agree with that. I mean, it was the one of the most egregious acts of like co- yeah. coordinated uh, corporate censorship ever for Amazon and yeah. Apple to kind of collaborate to just shutter Parler with no. Du- so it's not surprising then that these new sites are popping up. But uh, I, part- you know, I'm not on the right, and I have no interest in joining a Trump social network. So I'm not going to be joining. But I. Do hope that they're not shut down by the by tech oligarchs. That's that's my baseline. I I believe that they have the right to exist, just like every other awful social media network. Yeah, I mean, I also think I mean, I'm not in the habit of like giving right wingers uh, advice, even though every, people accuse me of being like a hardcore right winger myself. Um, but I almost think if they gravitate to these lesser uh, profile social media outfits, they sort of marginalize themselves. I mean, you kind of have to be, let's say you have to be on Twitter to have any influence at all. But if you're looking to garner influence on social media, you should probably just do so with what it, within whatever the constraints are on Twitter rather than... If you're allowed you know, to be begging there, Michael. People. Michael, yeah. if you're allowed to be there. I mean, Trump sure. is not allowed to be on Twitter anymore. That is true. That is true. So th- th- this advice is for everybody other than Trump. <laughs> All right, Lee, you are up. And Lee, if you're there, you just have to... Nope, okay. So, Al, you are next. And you can unmute yourself by hitting the microphone button in the bottom right, if you're there. Always uh, sad when the call-in interlocutors get cold feet. (laughs) Or they just left their phone and forgot that they're in the room. All right, John, you are next. John, are you there? There you mean this time? Okay, I didn't know what button to hit last time. Sorry. Anyway, I just wanted to ask if either of you had, are familiar at all with the Progressive Socialist Party of Ukraine. Uh, their chairwoman Natalia Vitrenko, she just spoke this weekend at the uh, Schiller Institute conference, and uh, she gave a speech calling for the denazification of Ukraine and uh, the return to Ukraine as a as a neutral nation. And uh, by denazification, she was talking about these like Bandera networks that were part of the coup. But she was also talking about the shock therapy policies that the International Monetary Fund has been imposing and what it's doing, you know, to the conditions of living there and to life expectancies and, you know, 
uh, it, it's kind of very similar to, to, to what was going on under the Nazis. I have not heard of her. Yeah, I haven't either, but uh, I will take a look at that. So thanks. Her for... speech is posted yeah. on the uh, Schiller Institute uh, YouTube channel right now. The, the whole conference is, but they have a, uh, a special link to her speech because it's so timely and, and, and powerful. And those, those, okay. those conferences in general are something you might want to look into. Okay. Thank you, John. Thank you. Davis, you are up. Hello, Aaron, Michael. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, got a quick Russiagate question for both of you. I know a lot of the uh, hardcore Russiagaters still seem to hang on to the argument about Manafort passing polling data to Kornick. And I want to give Taibbi credit for this because I think he made this comment maybe a year ago on Useful Idiots. But what is the idea that the Russians just couldn't hire their own polling firm to collect such data? I mean, look, there's there's so many things wrong with that stupid theory, and it only arose late in the Russia. <laughs> it keeps coming up. It's, it's unbelievable. And the, the reason why it comes up is because Kalimnik, who, so, who received this polling data from Manafort, is one of the few people in Russiagate who actually has a Russian passport. That's the problem with Russiagate. You, you know, it's supposed to be about Russia interfering with the U.S. and Russia conspiring with Trump. When you look at the actual people in the Trump orbit uh, interacting with Russians, there are very few actual Russians. And so Kalimnik is one of the few people who actually has a Russian passport. So basically late in the Mueller investigation, at the very end, Andrew Weissman came up with this theory after he was interviewing uh, Rob, uh, uh, Rick Gates, who w- was a cooperating witness who worked closely with Paul Manafort. came up with this theory that uh, Manafort and Gates' part, uh, business associate, Ponson Kalimnik, um, when Manafort gave Kalimnik polling data during the campaign, that that was somehow used as part of the sweeping Russian campaign to influence the election. And it's just stupid on so many By, like, levels. targeting certain states, right, where there was supposedly movement that yes, you know, Trump yes. could exploit, like Ohio or whatever. Yes, except when you look at the actual data, then you find out a few inconvenient things. First of all, the Russian troll farm ads that supposedly Kalimnik was was serving or helping to target at U.S. audiences, most of them had nothing to do with the election. They barely mentioned they barely mentioned the elections, as I've written about and as as the Senate's own reports document. Um, and then even the states that like swung the election, there were barely any ads there at all. And if there were Facebook ads, again, not, only at a small percentage of them actually referencing the election most of them ran during the primaries or after the election which is a very odd way to influence the 2016 election and, and without the super secret polling data the kremlin never would have known that uh, the trump campaign was trying to win wisconsin yeah exactly exactly so the theory of the case is so moronic and then you look at kalimnik himself and you have uh the fbi has never called him a russian intelligence officer all they said is that he has unspecified ties to Russian intelligence, which could mean anything. It could mean that he spoke to someone who is a Russian spy or who knows someone who is a Russian spy. It's vague on purpose because they're trying to insinuate something sinister without having to present any evidence for it. And I've written about this extensively, and I interviewed Kalimnik last year. It's up at the thegrayzone.com and also Real Clear Investigations where I published a long article about it. And it's just so – Moronic, and the reason, the only reason why it still persists is again because Kalimnik happens to have a Russian passport, 
And so they need him to build the narrative. That's the only reason why we're still, why we even still know his name. And uh, Aaron, I, I saw that uh, Paul Manafort is now on the media circuit. He made a, a dramatic appearance on Hannity <laughs> a week or so ago, and uh, I think may soon have a book out. So are you uh, courting him for a uh, revelatory interview, which I, I know you did with Rick Gates, which is very good. People should go and listen. I'd love to interview Manafort, and the first thing I'd talk to him about, or one of the first things, would be his work in Ukraine, where actually he's partly responsible for the mess that we're currently in. Because contrary to the Russiagate narrative that he was working for a uh, pro-Russian president, Yanukovych, and was trying to do the Kremlin's bidding, Manafort actually did his best to try to pull Yanukovych into the Western orbit. That's what his messaging and strategy was all about, and actually documents proving that were released by Mueller during the Russiagate probe, which, of course, everybody ignored because it didn't fit the desired narrative. So Manafort was actually trying to push Yanukovych away from Russia and trying to basically uh, fuel and encourage the same policies that ultimately led to the coup in 2014. Um, and uh, I'd love to hear Manafort's take on that now, if he's able to comment on them honestly, which, of course, I wouldn't presume, but... It, but that part would be very interesting. Thank well, uh, we all await that breathlessly. <laughs> Thank you, Davis. All right, Andre, you are next. We we did Andre already. I think those are just uh, recycled colors. Oh, these are recycled. Okay, Andre, yeah. are you there? No? Well, we, we already spoke to Andre. Okay. It's the same Andre. Andre. Okay, great. Well, then that's a great way to end the show. Michael, thank you for taking the time to join us tonight. This was great. Yeah, always... Enjoy it, Aaron, and uh, you know, shall do it again sometime soon. Where can people have pretty find, good turnout. Where can people find your work? Well, got a Substack naturally, just like every every other schmuck out there. <laughs> um, <laughs> mtracy.substack.com. Uh, of course, featuring your recent exclusive interview with the Ukrainian parliamentarian. I, yeah, I mean, I, why that should be a bombshell exclusive, I don't know, but I guess it was. Um, so take a look at that. You know, obviously cover a uh, pretty a wider array of subjects. Um, yeah, take uh, Twitter, et cetera. Got my own uh, call-in channel, which or uh, or show which you can follow. The you Gathering follow. of Experts. The Gathering of Experts, yes, with experts and scare quotes. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Michael, for taking the time tonight. I really appreciate it, and thank you everybody for tuning in. This was great, and if you want. To catch me tomorrow, Useful Idiots will be doing Monday morning live at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on our YouTube channel. And then after that, we'll be here on Colin to talk Monday morning and take calls. So if you can, join us then. And thank you for tuning in and have a great rest of your Sunday. <laughs>